Grab your Bibles, if you will, and take, open them with me to um, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. And you follow in your copies as I read the first ten verses of Colossians chapter 3. Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Here we go. Chapter 3 at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, and slave and free, but Christ is all in all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God. That endures forever. Guys, um, what I want to do is try to explain what Paul's message is in the first ten verses of chapter 3. But before we get to that, there's a couple of other things in um, Colossians that, uh, that I didn't read that, you, that I think will help us. In our understanding of those ten verses, I think these two insights might help. So you might look real quickly at, at verse or in chapter 1. Paul uh, says a couple of times in chapter 1 how excited he is that... That he has heard that some people in Colossae have become Christians. And then he says, uh, you know, I, we, I pray for you all the time and, and, and I'm praying that you'll get more and more knowledge. And then look, uh, at verse 10, <coughs> so as to wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, guys, he hears of Christians in Colossae and he says, man, my great desire for you and I'm praying for you is that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You know, he, there are so many of you who want to do that. So many of you right here who want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And that's Paul's exhortation to the Colossian church. By the way, he mentions that to the Ephesian church and he mentions it to us. Is this, this goal of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Then he tells you how that's done in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3, which we're going to get to in a minute. But before he tells you that, he tells you at least one way that it's not done. One way where walking worthy in a manner worthy of the Lord is not done. It's in chapter 2. That's the other thing that I want you to see before we jump into our text. But uh, it's in uh, verse 20 where he says, Why do you submit to regulations? Regulations. 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human preception teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see, guys, he starts with this exhortation. You know, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, but let me tell you what won't produce that. Why is it that you yield yourself to all these, you submit to regulations, all these do-nots and do's, and why do you do that? They look good, but they accomplish nothing. You know, guys, um, 2,000 years later, <laughs> we evangelicals, we're, we're not particularly known for our asceticism, are we? I mean, look around. But we are known for our do's and our don'ts. You know, those Christians, they don't do that, and they don't do this, and they do that, and they do that. It looks good, <laughs> but it doesn't produce a walk that's worthy of Christ. It, it, it won't do that. We don't, we're not known for our asceticism in the 21st century, but we are known for what I like to call code living. Living according to some code that we got at our church or somewhere, we've learned it at the Christian school we went to or whatever, and we, we live by the code. Um, let me give you an example. One of the, the authors that I've come to love uh, recently is a guy by the name of Mark Buchanan. He's written about three or four books, and I've read them all. But um, in his latest book, he tells a story about the church where he spent his boyhood. And um, uh, he said, you know, it was a good church, and, and they taught me right at my, at my boyhood church. And, but somehow, I still got it wrong. And now I'm quoting. He says, I never knew any stronger motivation for doing the right thing other than guilt or pride. Guilt... If I was falling short, pride, if I was out in the lead, I did not experience the buoyancy and zing of God's pleasure or the weight and sting of his rebuke. I feared rather to incur the scorn of church folk and I hankered after their smiling, nodding approval. This had more to do with something in me than something in them, but I particularly recall undertaking a hard regimen of Bible memorization. Not because I wanted to hide the word of God in my heart that I might not sin against God, but because I wanted to impress my newfound church friends. And that seemed to do the trick. As anyone who lives this way knows, it's exhausting and embittering it turns goodness into the mere avoidance of badness. It reduces holiness to a form of hygiene. See why I love him. Guys, we evangelicals, we live in this subculture of quick fixes for long-term problems. We, we are often easy prey to someone with with. A new promise of a surefire remedy. These, these holiness-producing methods that are much in vogue around evangelicalism. 
they look good. But they don't work. And you know, I hate to be that crass. They don't work like I'm some kind of utilitarian. But guys, they don't work because they're not true. It's an effort on our parts to to produce holiness from the outside in. Twenty-first century evangelicalism is not known for its asceticism, but it is known for its codes. And I want you to know something. They don't work. But they look good. That's what he says there in in chapter 2, verses 20 and following. Let me give you another example, which is really not from Mark Buchanan. It's not from Paul. It's from me. It's my own personal example. It's my faith. It's my own standby. You know, my my old faithful. Because in my world, the world out of which I come, that is um, the Reformed theology world. In my world, the way that you produce holiness is through knowledge. Now, gang, knowledge is a good thing. It's it's desirable. But when it's by itself, knowledge by itself can be hazardous to one's spiritual health. It's used as a weapon or as a trophy. You know, Paul warned us against that. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up. (laughs) It's as if knowledge comes with a warning. Beware. Knowledge causes swelling of the head. Gang, a large head tends to turn into, um, it tends to make us into know-it-alls, you know, blowhards, uh, show-offs. Because people who know often want other people to know that they know. There's this notion, at least that came from out of my world, the world that I I, I perhaps am still a part of, that the more you know, or if you know more than other people, that makes you somehow better than them. A big head on a small soul is not a very pretty thing. Trust me. You know, it's only great love for Christ that somehow detoxifies knowledge. But what I, all I'm trying to say is this, guys. Paul begins Colossians with an exhortation. The exhortation is, let's walk in a manner worthy of Christ. You know what? I think just about every one of you say, okay, let's do it. I want to do that too. Well, let me tell you how not to do it. First of all, new methods won't work. And... Pursuing knowledge for knowledge's sake won't do it. And then we come to our text where Paul tells you how it will take place. And it's not by new methods. It's not by more knowledge. It's by an understanding of how the gospel works. Now, take a look at the text with me, guys. This is, um, this is glorious stuff. And I hope I will serve it well, because it is great stuff. Guys, look with me 
Here's how, again, remember, his exhortation is, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Now, here are some some instructions as to how that's going to take place. He's already told you how it won't take place. Now he's going to tell you how it does. I want you to notice in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, that the starting point is for us to be very familiar with our new identity in Christ. Now, I've said that a lot in this series, yes. But, gang, it is vital. Notice how he starts in verses 1 through 4. He says in verse 1, You have been raised with Christ. Say that. Then in verse 3, he says, uh, You have died with Christ. He also says that in verse 20 of chapter 2. Then in, later in verse 3, he says, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are raised with Christ. You have died with Christ. You are hidden with Christ. And then, notice in verse 4, so united are we with Christ that he will not appear in glory without us. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So united are we with him that when he appears in all of his glory, he, he wouldn't dream of doing that without us. Guys, as a Christian, I am someone who has been delivered from the dominion of sin. And I am, therefore, free and able and motivated to wage war on sin. So principle number one, that is, in this Exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Principle number one is to know, rest in, think through, meditate on your new identity in Christ. It is there that you must begin. Without that, all else is doomed. All of the rest that you do is doomed. If it doesn't grow out of verses 1 through 4, it's pure asceticism. Now, guys, having said that, notice what Paul does next. He then says in verse 5, Therefore, based on this new identity that you have in Christ, Put to death. Um, Guys, I'm going to say this a couple of times before I quit. Don't forget principle number one. Verses one through four. New identity, okay? But in light of that, he then follows that up by saying, knowing that that's who you are, therefore, put to death. Now, gang, here's where I'll try to impress you. The Greek verb that is found there is one Greek word. It's the word from which our English word necrosis comes from. Uh, It's necrao. Uh, It's found in the second person plural. You know what that is? It's you, but not you singular. You plural. He says, you, plural, put to death. And then, the thing that you need to know is that it is found in the imperative voice. It's a command. 
He looks at the people of God and he says, all right, you all. Put to death. He invites you into this energetic engagement in battling with your sin. Now, gang, let me tell, let me say two quick things. In the first five sermons of this series, if you have heard me trying to promote some kind of pacifism, you missed it. I wasn't trying to promote that. What I was trying to do is spend some legitimate time on giving the people of God an idea about who they are. Just like Paul does here. But the other thing I want to say real quickly is, is there a contradiction between 2.23 and 3.5? I mean, up in 2.23, he seems, to, he seems to say, that asceticism, stop that work against you, it won't work. And then he turns around and he says, put to death. Be energetically engaged. Does he contradict himself? No, ladies and gentlemen. The difference is verses 1 through 4. You see, guys, the, the, the normal route to holy living for the evangelical in the 21st century is chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And Paul says, that looks good. It doesn't work. And then he says, this is how it will. First of all, you are hidden with Christ. You have died with Christ. He's going to return with you. You are resurrected with Christ. This is who you are. Your whole life is hidden with Christ and God. And on the basis of that, he then turns to you and issues you a command and says, put it to death. The difference in asceticism and what Paul is teaching is verses 1 through 4. Gang, um, after he gives you this command, put to death, he then surrounds that exhortation with some instructions as to how we're to go about that. That is, how we're to go about putting it to death. Putting sin, putting the flesh. He tells you some things that you need to see. Notice what he says. Um, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, etc. Okay, here's principle. This, this is instruction number one. Call a spade a spade. That is, call it sexual immorality. Don't call it, I've been sowing my wild oats, or I've had a midlife crisis. It's not a midlife crisis, ladies and gentlemen. It's sexual immorality. Call it impurity. But don't call it, my thought life is lacking. Call it idolatry. Because that's what covetousness is. Gang. To deal with sin, we first have got to be honest with ourselves. We have to unmask self-deceit. We're telling ourselves things that aren't true. Call a spade a spade. But the only people who can do that are the people who understand verses 1 through 4. But if you do understand your security and safety in verses 1 through 4, you can be honest. You call a spade a spade. 
Secondly, notice what he does in verse 6. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That is, instruction number two, take your sin, whatever it is, and drag it, kicking and screaming in the light of a, of a wrath-bearing Christ. My sin leads not to some kind of lasting pleasure. It leads to holy, divine displeasure. Examine your sin, whatever it is, in the light of its punishment. Gang, sin is a big deal. It is a big deal, guys. It's so big, there was only one conceivable remedy. Christ's death for it. So we're, he's just giving instructions as to how this putting to death is. He says, first of all, call us the spade. Second of all, examine your sin in the light of what it produced. Thirdly, and I love this. This is in verse 9. He says, do not lie with one another. Do not lie to one another. Yes. Do not lie to one another. Come on, guys. Christians ought to be some of the most honest people in the world. And I'm not talking about with the IRS. I'm talking about with each other. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to pretend that I got the world by the tail. I got all the answers when it comes to raising kids. My family's fine. You know, the world hates that stuff, and so do we. And Paul says... Stop your lying to one another. You don't need to. You can be honest. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that freeing? I don't have to have you think more highly of me than you really ought to think about me. I can tell you the truth. You know why I can tell you the truth? Because of verses 1 through 4. And then the other thing he says... Really, in verses 9 and 10, he goes on after that and he says, Seeing that, you have put off the old self with its practices and put it on the new self, which is being renewed in, your, in, in, in knowledge after the image of its creator. He's suggesting, I think, that you and I need to remind ourselves that new men live new lives. As a result of the finished work of Christ, I'm a new man, and those people, they live new lives. Anything less than a new life is a contradiction of who I am in Christ. And, and my newness is accompanied by the indwelling Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about next week. But let me just say this. I can stop. You know what I'm talking about? You know those ugly little things that nobody knows about that I keep hanging in my closet? I can stop. Sin doesn't have to have dominion over me. Because new men live new lives. And this is who I am. And I'm going to live like that. Guys, this, this exhortation in verse 5 to put sin to death, it's a command, as I, as I told you. The command is for us to refuse it, to starve it, to reject it, to do whatever we can to kill it. Do you know how Jesus described that? Let me give you Jesus' words. He says it like this. 
you know, Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild, wouldn't hurt a little child. This is what he says. He says, if your right eye offends you, tear the blasted thing out. That's how he said it. Gang, um, we've got to understand that there are sins that breed other sins. And they, and they become life-controlling sins. I'm a liar because I'm trying to protect the affair that I'm in. There's some sins that breed other sins and, they, and the whole thing begins to swamp me then. I want to give you one example, and, and I, I'd like for you to look at this with me. It's, it's what Solomon does in the Proverbs. And I think you, if you know anything about Proverbs, you know that he's talking to his son, and he takes his son aside, and he's, he's trying to counsel with his son. And, and the one specific sin that he mentions is sexual sin. Talks about it for seven chapters or so. And he says, in the midst of all that, he's talking to his son and he's saying, trying to, how to handle this and on and on. And he says in verse five, excuse me, in chapter five, verse eight, he says, son, 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 keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Here's a daddy who says, son, because of the power of temptation and because of the effects of fall, of the fall on us, Son, do whatever you have to do, but don't even get close to her or it, if it happens to be a computer. Gang, listen to me. Jesus is not going to do that for you. Chapter 6. He, I'm in verse 20 of Proverbs. He says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman. What, what, is, he, what is he saying? He's, you know, son... Take these instructions and memorize them. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that scripture memory is a must. We get so much bad information six days a week, or maybe seven. The only antidote is the instructions and the teachings and the, that are found in the Word of God. Guys, can I, can I mention one other thing, which is kind of the elephant in the room? Internet porn. You know, you've seen what the statistics are lately. Three out of ten church-going men are engaged in internet porn. And it's much higher than that among high school and junior high boys. I I can't, you know, all generalizations are bad, so I don't want to make a generalization. But you, you ask Will Savelle about... Our teenage sons. Guys, what, what do you have to do? I don't know. I don't know. Is it, I know one husband that told me that he, he um, sits down with his wife on a monthly basis, I think, and examines every file with her. Goes through every computer file with her. 
I, I don't know what you have to do, but whatever you have to do, if, it, if you can't get it stopped, then you, 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 you throw the thing out of your house. That is, that computer thing. Oh, but Jimmy, <laughs> that's unthinkable. Well, guys, did you, I mean, putting sin to death, means removing as best I can every occasion, every accessory to sin. I mean, you cannot put to death without the pain of the kill. Did you think this was going to be easy? I mean, did you think it was going to be painless? But guys, having said all of that, I want to Go back and remind you that the negative task of putting sin to death is set in the broader context of telling you your life is hidden with God in Christ. You divorce that from his exhortation in verse 5 and you've got asceticism, ladies and gentlemen. Which looks good. It just doesn't work. Guys, um, I am being called to live like the one whose life is hidden with Christ in God. And his instruction to me, or his, his command to me in 3.5, to put sin to death, um, comes only after... I know how to think about myself. I know how to view myself. I know how to define myself and who I am. It's not an outside-in project. It's an inside-out project. The origin, the source, the power, the strength to put sin to death is found in my new life in Christ Jesus. Now, gang... That is not a small difference, a small semantic difference between asceticism and that he's talking about in chapter 2 and what he's talking about in chapter That's not a small thing. And I want to leave you with one story, which I hope will illustrate what I've said this morning. Um, and I got this story out of a book, too, so um, I'm not this smart. Let's imagine that you are a single woman. And you just got a job at a large corporation. And uh, you arrive for your first day at work. And they assign you a cubicle in this large workspace along with dozens of other cubicles. So here you are in a, your, perhaps your first real job. And you've got a cubicle and um, lots of other people all around you in this large workspace in the corporation. And one of your fellow employees tells you that on the other side of the, um, of the workspace, on the other side of all those cubicles, is the boss's office. And outside of the boss's office is a, is a bulletin board. And on that bulletin board, almost daily, the boss writes up on the bulletin board all kinds of instructions Rules, company regulations, um, motivations, uh, deadlines, <coughs> everything goes up on that bulletin board. 
And they, the, your, your fellow employee, as a young woman, tells you that um, you need to check that bulletin board and, uh, you know, frequently. So you, you see the bulletin board and you read it. And, and the, the first impression that it makes on you is a, is a rather negative one. You know, it's kind of irksome to have somebody treat me like that. And, you know, I'm a woman and, and uh, you know, I got a college education under my belt. And, and now they're, they're, they're treating me like that. All that rules and regulations stuff. And, <clears throat> you know, it's kind of distasteful for someone as, as, as educated as I am to be, you know, to be talked to like that. But, to, you know, but I need the job. You know, I need those benefits. And so, um, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to, uh, to adhere to all the rules that are up there on the bulletin board. Because I want this job. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get fired. Um, and even though the, the rules are a bit cold and impersonal, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can to, you know, stay in line. A couple of months later, there is an office party. And you are introduced for the first time to the boss. And the boss turns out to be a rather youngish single guy. And in this office party, he spends a little bit of time with you and trying to get to know you. And, and of course, set aside for the moment all of the issues associated with working in the, uh, dating in the workplace. But, just, but he begins to demonstrate a real interest in you. And, and uh, you all begin to date. And... Um, and eventually you marry. But while you're dating, you notice something very strange in you. That um, while this dating is going on, you notice that your perspective about the bulletin board changes. In fact, your perspective changes to the degree... That you find yourself developing an affection for the boss. And so you no longer see all those rules and regulations up there as cold and impersonal. No, no. Now they're, they're appropriate. They're helpful. They're uh, timely. They're, uh, they're, they're, you know, even, even wise. In helping us function as a company and as employees and, and, uh, pleasing the, uh, the, the company and, and the boss. They're, they're, they're nothing more than specific ways that I can, um, please my employer and, and, and the boss. Now guys, what changed? Wasn't the rules. The rules didn't change. What changed is the nature of the relationship and your attitude towards the rule giver. Gang, the lifestyle that Paul is pleading for in Colossians 1, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that lifestyle and the fruit that it, that it bears does not grow out of a stoic obedience to God's commands.
It grows out of a heart that's been captured and captivated by the giver of the rules. You know, there will be times where obedience is difficult, yes. But even in the midst of the difficulty, I'm reminded that the difficulty is the result of chasing after someone who's good and who loves me. Gang, once the relationship flourishes, the life will change. Not the other way around. I discover who I am in Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, this instruction to put my sin to death becomes my delight. Let's pray. Our Father, I do pray that you will help your people wrestle with the, um, the exhortations of your word. And where I have muddied the waters, I pray that you will clarify those waters for them. But, Lord, if there has been clarity and accuracy in the handling of your word this morning, take it and stir up your people to a whole new attack against the flesh and sin and the world and the devil. An attack that begins from knowing that my life, my eternity, is safe. My life is hidden with Christ in God. And from that, I proceed to put to death those things that are so ugly and still remain a part of my life. Father, if you brought people here today who have not yet met this Savior of ours, might something be said that will grant them a fresh glimpse into the beauty of our Savior. We pray, of course, in His name.